Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, April 11th, which means it's Media Monday here on the pod. We'll be talking about all things media with our fearless leader, John Kelly. Today, we'll talk about the apparent comeback of the White House Correspondents' Dinner and whether the new COVID subvariant is an actual threat to party season in the Beltway or just something for journalists to write about. And it's also David Zaslov's first day as CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery. Can he make this Franken company the darling of Wall Street? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Happy Monday, everybody. If it's Monday... It means one thing. It's Media Monday, which means I'm joined by my boss, John Kelly, the co-founder of Puck. How you doing, man? I'm good, Peter. How are you? I'm good. I want to give an April 11th uh, shout out to William Hamby, who is a Puck super subscriber, power reader in Richmond, Virginia. It's his birthday today. Happy birthday, Dad. Do you want to say happy birthday to my dad? I do. I think um, it's Bill and, and Tressa is your mom, right? Yes. I think I noted early on that they were the two most loyal Puck readers, early subscribers, open pretty much every email they get. And so, uh, happy birthday, Bill. Here's to another one. (laughs) All right. Uh, Okay, so it is April, uh, which means in Washington, D.C., it is party time. As much as Washington knows how to party, uh, that means putting on your ill-fitting suit, tuxedo, going into a Hilton or Marriott basement and listening to some C plus roasts while you toast each other and give people awards, including your fellow journalists. This whole Washington party season, the White House Correspondents Dinner, the Gridiron Dinner, kind of went away during the Trump years. It's coming back, and it's coming back with a, with a little bit of <laughs> spice this year because there is a coronavirus sub 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 variant going around. And there's this interesting thing I've noticed on Twitter. You read about it in. Politico and Axios and, you know, Washington Post, and they're writing about how people are scared to party and that the gridiron dinner was a super spreader event. And all of this is sort of being presented without the fact that this is an extremely mild subvariant, without the context that people are going out to dinners constantly, that the general population has more or less gone back to normal as much as they can. Are these politicians or are these journalists like who are writing about the panic around COVID and, and these awards dinners, are they just like afraid of their readers, their voters who are Democrats? Like what's going on here? 
Well, it's funny. When we were preparing for the show, Peter, we were talking about the, the correspondence dinner, and I'd gotten a text from a, a very, very plugged-in Washington person who was sort of asking me, you know, what I thought was going to happen. I guess we're, we're a couple weeks out here, and this person, you know, said they had no inside information, but they were, you know, they were being a plaintiff. They were genuinely curious, and it is on some level the talk of the town there. I have a couple of reasons I think that that's going on. The first is that that reporters in general, but political reporters in particular, are constantly canvassing for their own relevance and spot in the pecking order. I was last down there for um, for this night at the end of the Obama term. It was the, the final Obama dinner, the dinner where he made that joke about having to write like the warm-up material for Hillary the next year, you know? Um, <laughs> Brutal. And I remember I was staying at the Washington Hilton too, so I remember everyone coming in and it was... It was the most star study it had been. I mean, you, you know, you were a part of um, of DC of the sort of slightly previous era, but you know how how star study the Obama administration was at the end, and, and how many people kind of wanted to be around Obama era DC. And I think that a lot of political journalists, uh, you know, from from network TV to what we used to call print, saw Washington as being cooler than it had ever been in the final years of the Obama administration, and while Trump effectively put a chill on the White House correspondence dinner it, because of his vitriolic relationship with the press. These same journalists were as relevant, if not in many cases, much more relevant than they ever had been. In fact, you know, some were, were veritable pop stars. So I think that a lot of the anxiety around whether the White House correspondence dinner is going to go down is actually sort of a proxy for reporters in D.C. wondering where they fit on the cultural totem pole right now. So I was in D.C., basically from 2005 until 2015. So a good 10-year span when things changed a lot in that city, culturally, politically. And the first Obama White House Correspondents Weekend in 2009, I mean, I remember going to like the Google party and like Richard Branson was over there and Kerry Washington was over there. It was like, this is crazy because this is also after, you know, the coolest thing about DC was, you know, like the Bush daughters, like hanging out at Smith Point, you know, like it was not <laughs> not a cool town and it felt like a younger and cooler. But getting invited to certain parties, getting invited to sit at a cool table at the White House Correspondents Dinner in a town that prides itself on knowledge and relationships and who you know and your business card and what's on it. You know, it was validating <laughs> to get into the cool parties and be one of the cool kids, you know, in a city. And I say this, you know, as a dork, like full of dorks. And during the Trump years, you didn't need the parties and the gatherings to validate that what you did was important. There were two bits of self-reflection about the White House Correspondents Weekend during the Trump years. One was what you just said. Trump was particularly mendacious. He attacked reporters all the time. And it like we're not getting together to either celebrate him, our relation to the White House, or like the blind spots that Washington had that allowed someone like Donald Trump to get elected. But another thing that was sort of talked about was this whole thing is icky. Republican, Democrat, like whoever it is, Obama, Bush, Clinton, Trump, like why are we getting together to celebrate how cozy journalists are with politicians? That went away. Right. But it's sort of coming back. Like, it feels like like things are not getting back to, like, the coolness of the Obama years because Biden's not as cool. But people are just sort of gently sliding back into being like, hey, it's cool to have these fancy parties and that are sponsored by this brand or that brand. And I thought that was gone forever. I mean, that was the that was the general consensus a few years ago that this weekend was just going away. <laughs> I'm actually very OK with the idea of the president and this, the quote unquote press corps getting in a room 
for one night a year to sort of acknowledge that they are playing a game. I feel like one of the things that's annoying to me about DC media is that, you know, people like you and I know that it is a game. We, we, we know that the, that, that your pal Jen Psaki does make the decision about whether it's the Times or the Post or Politico is going to break a lot of stories of the White House, right? Like, that's just real. I'm not saying people don't report their asses off, but mm-hmm. there's, there is a horse trading game that is baked into the DNA of how the town operates. And we know that. The people in that room know that. And I think there's actually something healthy about acknowledging on one night that there is a ton of backscratching and favor trading that goes into to how information gets out. The, the, the very notion of a press pool is predicated on the idea that you're giving out similar information to an astounding number of reporters and that people get the upper hand. It often has to do with the length of the relationship or maybe some sort of small compromise that, that someone has. So I'm actually kind of cool with calling a spade a spade and, and being open about it for a night. Yeah, I just think it's like depends sort of what the conversation is like and the humor is like. I mean, aforementioned Bill Hamby, my dad, went to, you know, him and my mom were both TV journalists back in the day and like know a lot of people there. And my dad got invited to one, I think it was 2004, five or six or something, maybe even 2003. And, and Bush made that joke about like looking for WMDs. He's like, oops, can't find them. Ha ha ha. And it was like, like that was like so icky, you know, to a lot of people that he was joking about the false pretext for a war that was at the time killing lots of young Americans in the Middle East. Yeah, and it was just that like, was a comment that was made for the Michael Moore movie, you know? I yeah, mean, just totally. Oh my God, yeah. Brain dead. Anyway, yeah. I just want to like just drill down real quick on this, this COVID DC thing. And I also want to talk to you about something else happening this Media Monday, which is David Zaslov's first day at Warner Brothers Discovery after this break. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back, everyone. I just want to drill down real quick on an example of this, to me, at least sort of bizarre COVID conversation that's happening in, in Washington right now as the White House Correspondent Center comes up on April 30th. This week, Politico in Playbook 
headline. This is the first line in their piece. There's no denying it. COVID is rocking Washington right now. (laughs) Days after Saturday's annual Gridiron Club dinner, multiple attendees of the bougie 600-seat ComFab. Again, I think this is in like literally a Marriott or a Renaissance Marriott. So that's Washington's definition of bougie. Have come down with COVID, including Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, Attorney General Merrick Garland, and Representatives Adam Schiff and Joaquin Castro, blah, blah, blah. Um, Look, we have an old president. Uh, The Speaker of the House is very old. COVID, you know, is plausibly a threat to them given their age. But I immediately went over to the New York Times, very helpful as always, COVID-19 charts. COVID hospitalizations, you know, at the time I tweeted this and also today in Washington, the daily average, 65 total people per 100,000, nine, 14-day change, down 21%. And so, yes, while this sub-sub-sub variant is popping a little bit right now, the threat (laughs) in terms of hospitalizations and deaths is very small, and yet, Democrats and their counterparts in the media who have readerships and voters who probably skew to the left and care a lot about COVID. I feel like they're just like have that audience in the back of their head. And this is also the David Leonhardt riff, which is that at the same time, if you are a registered Democrat or you are a progressive, you are simultaneously the most vaccinated you could possibly be and the most scared of getting back to normal. So it just feels a little performative here. And also like the definition of Washington is very specifically like, you know, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and not, you know, so-and-so who lives in Anacostia or Bethesda Chevy Chase and is either like a bureaucrat, a teacher, or like, you know, a garbage truck driver. But that's just my rant. Well, I don't want to get far afield, but I do want to point out you have an excellent story you wrote for Puck a couple of weeks ago about this sort of center-left politicians who are able to be COVID-sensical and and, and sort of point out that, yes, like, COVID is terrible, but yes, we're also coming out of this, and yes, we have to find ways to to redefine the new normal and and not constantly quiver every time there's a new sub-variant that comes out there. It's actually a political weakness on the left to quiver. Under Pelosi, this Congress has been effective in many ways, but I feel like when it comes to COVID issues, there's just like a knee buckling that leaves them very politically vulnerable. But I, I won't um, I won't digress there. It's Media Monday, Peter. <laughs> it is Media Monday. So I would like to pivot to a big media story, which is David Zaslav's first day heading Warner Brothers Discovery. Dylan Byers, Matt Bellany have written a lot about this transition. His first day is today. This is a multi-billion dollar company. How many employees is he about to oversee? Uh, I mean, I I have to assume he's taking on tens of thousands of new more employees today. But this is a sort of Franken company right now that yeah. that's saddled with with debt. And if you think about Zaslav's top priorities, there's going to be I guess what's anticipated to be three billion dollars in in cost cutting synergies. Mm-hmm. I think we all mm-hmm. know what, what synergies mean. Um, there's 55 billion in debt that the combined Warner Brothers Discovery is going to carry. And here's what's interesting to me, Peter, like. We know media companies are going to get bigger and bigger. That's just the, the nature of this moment that we live in. Everyone is, is chasing Netflix. And we're seeing that the, the route to get there is scale, followed by kind of discarding of, of lesser assets. I actually, without getting like too geographical or highfalutin, like I feel like there is like a Pangea thing that's happening in media now where like all these big countries are coming together to form new continents, but like some islands split off of them. So we're going to see that happening at Warner Brothers Discovery where you're accumulating all these assets and just some things probably get spun or don't work out. And, and certainly 
layers of, of management get eliminated. But this has obviously been like the biggest story in media for a year since they announced the deal. And at Puck, it's like, you know, <laughs> a, a never ending bonanza. But I am surprised at how lukewarm the market has been to this. The, the Discovery stock is, has been down you know, 40 something percent since they announced the deal. It, it ticked up 6% on Friday when the deal closed. And we're, we're taping this before the market opens on Monday. So it is ticking up in, in pre-trading hours, but it's going to take the stock market a while to come to terms with this new arrangement. They probably want to see Zaslov actually act on some of these synergies. And they probably also want to see AT&T shareholders basically sell the stock and have the stock user base essentially pivot from largely AT&T to people excited about this merger. And again, at the risk of like, you know, belaboring here, one of the things people forget about this new Zaslov rolled off entity is that AT&T owns 71% of it. Like, you know, mm. AT&T was the larger company. It's a, I think it's a three-class stock. Discovery is controlling it. You know, Zaslov is is the, the sole steward here. But the AT&T shareholder base for years had been accustomed to these large annuities, these, these dividends. So it seems to me, and I'm not a um, expert on this, but, you know, Bill Cohen certainly has a, has a great piece that Puck published yesterday that articulated some version of this and more, the stock has to move into the right stockholder base. And that's going to take time and really shrewd executive chairmanship on, on Zaslov's part to get it there. But I, um, this is not investment advice, obviously, but, <laughs> uh, you know, and I wouldn't take my own investment advice. I didn't think about that angle at all, honestly. It's complicated. This is a different, you know, this is very different. You're rolling up to a publicly traded company that's trading at $25 a share and a sort of humongous asset, a humongous division of a stupendously humongous public entity. And that's why it's taken so long to close. Integrating this is going to be really, really hard. And figuring out who wants to support this company and who's going to grow it from a shareholder base, it's going to take a long time. Yeah. I mean, you said Franken Company and um, Meg James in the LA Times actually also has a good sort of cliff notes about you know, for people who don't follow this stuff that closely, like what this marriage means. And, you know, you have assets that are like, you know, premium cable assets like TBS and TNT, which have also these big sports deals. You have HBO over here. You have CNN over here. You've got HGTV, Animal Planet. They've got to figure out how to get into the streaming game. You've got like three or four different things that could be their own entities within this giant company. And it's just fascinating to see where, where it's going to go as a consumer, but also, as you point out, as a shareholder. I think, you know, Hollywood is very curious to see how he can handle talent and how he can handle the upper, upper elite of what HBO does and what Warner Brothers, the studio does. These don't seem like really open questions to me. Zaslav is someone who's managed extraordinary egos his entire life. The guy was Jack Welch's protege, for Christ's sake. So it's not like he doesn't know how to work with show ponies, but it's going to take time. That's right. All right, man, we will see you uh, next Monday. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow.
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 